This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Scott Cooper, and he is the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most storied venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know all the companies they've invested in. You're not gonna. I'm not gonna give you a list here. Scott is an unusual guy because not only did he go Stanford undergrad and law school, so he has that legal um, background. He understands the both the deal side, the finance side, and the tech side. He's really a triple threat, and he discusses the things that any entrepreneur or theoretically any buddy who wants to be a limited partner in a venture capital firm should know. If you are at all interested in technology, startups, VC funding, you are going to find this conversation to be absolutely delightful. So with no further ado, my conversation with Andreessen Horowitz's Scott Cooper. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Scott Cooper. He graduated from Stanford undergrad and law school. He was employee number one at Andreessen Horowitz, the famed venture capital firm where he is currently managing partner. The fund runs $7 billion and has been early investors in such startups as Facebook, Groupon, Twitter, Airbnb, Slack, Stripe, Skype, and many others. His new book is The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. Scott Cooper, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. So I've been looking forward to having this conversation. You are the third um, Andreessen Horowitz veteran willing to uh, suffer my slings and arrows. Say, right. What does that say about us? Right? Um, well, it says that you're pretty hip. You get podcasts and <laughs> you understand having people ask you interesting questions and coming up with interesting answers. So let's start with a little bit about your background. Professionally, you were kind of born right into the bubble. That's how you describe yourself in the book. You led the IPO for Opsware in 01. What was it like going public right in the middle of the collapse? It was uh, it was it was an amazing amazing time. So you're right. I was actually an investment banker before I went to Opsware. And by the way, Opsware was actually it was LoudCloud at that time, which was the predecessor in 2001. Right. So just a little background. Yeah. LoudCloud was set up to be the original Amazon apps Web in the cloud, right? right. Yeah. Basically, that's Ten what we were trying to do earlier. Right? Yeah. Yes. And then at a certain point, that pivoted to you you had developed your own software operational software Correct. and that's right, said exactly. hey other companies are going to need this so you took an in-house technology similar yeah. to what amazon is doing with loudcloud with right. a uh aws yeah. and you spun it out as a separate full fully separate entity that's exactly right so loudcloud started in 1999 so it was you know as, as perfect you recall, timing perfect timing right we raised a ton of money we hired a bunch of people uh, and then, of course, the market turned uh, in a different direction. So we took it public in 2001, actually, for the very honest reason, which was that was the best source of capital at the time. So right. there was no other you know, viable source or attractive source of capital. And I think we were one of actually two IPOs that happened that year. In 01, yeah, not, what was it, 500 in 2000 or Yeah, 99? so there was about 750 or so between the two years of 99 and 2000. Wow. Yeah. And then basically, I think there were two. In 2001, <laughs> us and a company called Storage Networks, I think, was the other one that went out that year. So eventually, um, the company gets bought by Hewlett Packard. That's right. And what was that? So the people who are still there as employees, 
what was that transition like? What was your role? You're an attorney. What was your yeah. role in the uh, acquisition? It was fun. So um, uh, my main role was actually to run the integration between the two companies. So mm-hmm. uh, we kind of had, I had, an, there was an executive on our side who was me, and then there was an executive on the HP side. And basically our job was, okay, we're doing this deal. What is this going to look like as a combined entity? You know, who's going to have jobs in what places? How do we get everything from IT systems integrated? How do we talk to customers? And it was a fun, it was actually a really fun opportunity and, uh, you know, it was just a different, it was just different from anything I'd ever been through, right? So, you know, I'd always been in the startup community, and then we go into this behemoth HP, and, you know, they've got these playbooks, basically, about how you do this integration. Uh, and, you know, what we tried to help them understand was, look, all that stuff's important. The most important thing, though, is what are you going to tell the employees about who has jobs, what those jobs are going to be, you know, where they're going to show up on day one to go to work. And so there was kind of a human element of it that was, you know, a little bit underserved in the HP side, notwithstanding the fact that they were really good at the systems integration piece. So, but the assumption is the Opsware employees who may have seen their jobs cut, they still had pretty nice stock options exactly, and a nice yeah. bump. Yeah. So it wasn't, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm cut loose. Now I could go do my next gig. That's right. And for most people, most people had a job opportunity to go to HP because HP was really buying this as a growth opportunity. It wasn't right. like an acquisition where, you know, they're like, look, let's just chop 50% of the people right. and, and, you know, and uh, create some cash. So most people, you know, maybe there were probably some people in like organizations like finance where obviously it's hard sometimes to have roles that are duplicate between organizations. Right. But anybody who was in a product or engineering or a sales facing role, all those people had the opportunity to stay and, and most of them did. So you come from a legal background, you're running operations at a technology company. Yep. How did the transition to venture (laughs) capital come about? Was it just lucky coincidence you were working with two guys named Andreessen Horowitz? Well, there was certainly certainly an element of that for sure. Uh, So I've been working, you know, with these guys now for almost 10 years when we started the firm because this year actually will be my... 20th year working with them. Really? That's which pretty is, uh, good. You know, That's probably a... just makes me a glutton for punishment. I'm not right. quite sure what uh, what to make of that. I, I've been to your office, and I have to say, that looks like a fun place to work. It is a fun place to work, yeah. No, it's been a great place, and uh, you know, we've grown it from, liter- there were literally three of us when we started 10 years ago. We've now got 170 employees, so wow. it's been a fun place. But yeah, look, I think the answer to your question is, yeah, it was a little bit of, I'd, Mark and Ben and I had always, just as I'd had career discussions with them when we were at LoudCloud and Opsware, I'd always said, hey, look, doing something like this someday would be fun. I, I, I didn't think about us starting a firm, but I said, gee, that's a kind of business that I think could be fun. And what happened was after we sold the business, the two of them started doing angel investing with their own money. So they were just investing out of their own checkbooks. On Meaning they, there's a windfall when the company is sold. They weren't billionaires, but they certainly made yeah. you know, tons of money. Yeah, they, were, they, so, they did fine. Yeah. And so Mark, the idea Mark, of yeah. taking, I'm going to pull $50 million aside and find you know, a hundred companies that could use half a million dollars each. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was even smaller than that though. It was literally, they were writing 50,000, excuse me, $100,000 checks. Right. Um, so it was very, it was very kind of small stuff. And, and you, by the way, 40. you as a, a lawyer and an operations guy, I could see you looking at this and gnashing your teeth and saying, where are the capital controls? How is it structured? <laughs> How, where's the paperwork? Like, I barely know you. And I could tell I, that I setup like made you crazy. I feel like you're unfairly typecasting me. But, but am I right? <laughs> uh, a little bit, a little bit. I, they they did it, the truth be told. Look, they did the angel investing on their own. You know, I I kind of came into the picture later as we started talking about the fund and the firm itself. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I inherited a lot of that paperwork, of course. Why did you write this book, and who is it for? Yeah. So as we talked about, I've been doing tech stuff for about 25 years now. Uh, I was a banker, actually. We never got to that, but I was a banker tech even stuff. before. Is that, is that a technical term? Exactly. Tech things in the tech industry. Sorry. Maybe I can I can be more eloquent. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, but, you know, now having been in this business for 10 years, I, I continue to get a series of questions from entrepreneurs all the time 
Same most, question. Yeah, most of which I thought were answered, you know, kind of, you know, stuff like, look, should I even raise venture capital? Like, how does, how does the business work? And a lot of them have this undertone of, you know, to a certain extent, how do I avoid getting screwed by the right. venture capitalists? I mean, I hate to say it that way, but that's kind of that's kind of the way it was. And are so, you implying your brethren are rapacious out there? Is that is that the implication? No, I think the implication is there's just not a level playing field from an information perspective, right? Oh, so Information look, asymmetry yeah, is a problem. That's right. So look, we'll do, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years. You know, we've done thousands of deals, you know, and repeat entrepreneur maybe does this five, six, seven times right. over the course of their life. And so there's just stuff that we know and we see because we see it on an everyday basis. And so the purpose of the book in my mind was, look, if we could demystify that and hopefully level the playing field, then maybe it helps have a better relationship between entrepreneurs and VCs. And, and maybe it even helps people who wouldn't have otherwise thought about entrepreneurship come into the business. Huh. Interesting. And I have to ask. For the uninitiated, what is Sand Hill Road? I've I've been there. Yeah. I I understand it as a concept. Yeah, the concept is so the concept at a high level is like you know what Wall Street is to financial services or what you know Music Row is to Nashville country music, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's basically it literally is a road. It is a street. Uh, it is uh, very unexciting, as you've probably seen when you've been there. It's a bunch of kind of, you know, fairly drab two-story buildings. You have um, a very nice waterfall that we do have. That's true. We are, we are, your building. So. We are lucky to have kind of water effect outside our building. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, but you know, it just happens to be the locus where all the venture capitalists have, have uh, you know, established themselves. And I think it's really the real the answer for that is because of its proximity to Stanford. So the more important part of Sand Hill Road is when you go down Sand Hill Road east, you know, about a mile and a half, you end up on the Stanford campus. And it really does, I think, illustrate the kind of tight connectedness that's always happened between Stanford and the venture and the startup communities. Right. right. You see it in Boston between MIT and that's Harvard. That's exactly right. It's like going and to Kendall all the biological Square, right? Sciences. Yeah, right. You go to Absolutely. Kendall Square and Cambridge, it's the same kind of thing, right? A really interesting concept. So one of your chapters is titled The Art of the Pitch. Explain what that is. Yeah. So uh, we see lots of pitches, uh, as you can imagine, probably about 2,000, 2,500 a year. Really? Yeah. That's um, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. So the art of the pitch is really about kind of making sure the pitch resonates, is going to resonate with the audience. And I think key to that is to understanding what is it that venture capitalists care about? What is it that they are incented to do? And therefore, how are they going to evaluate you? Mm -hmm. And so I think the first thing to think about is... The most important thing to think about in this business is we are wrong more often than we're right, which I know is a terrible thing to say. And if your kids came home and got, you know, 50% on their test, you'd be pretty unhappy. If you're doing that in venture capital, you're you're still in the game at least. And as as long as you bring up um, that batting average, yeah. why does the hit-miss ratio not matter as much in venture capital yeah. as it does elsewhere? Because- uh, if we do it right, then the reason it doesn't matter is because 10 to 20% of the companies, hopefully, if we do it right, you're going to earn 25, 50, 100 times your money. And so basically, think of it as, you know, the, the significant winners will basically make up for, you know, kind of that 50% of things where you won't get your money back. And then probably the 20, 30% where you get a little bit of money back, but not enough to make the math work. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that, then what that means is if I'm going to invest in a company today, I've got to at least believe it has a chance to be one of those 10 or 20% winners. Now, you know, we, we wish we were smart enough to know exactly which ones they were. And of course, we would just invest in those companies. Uh, but we have to at least believe that the, the kind of the ground rules and the opportunity exists. And, if, and so that really kind of leads into the art of the pitch about how to frame the pitch in that context. So from your perspective, what becomes more important to cast a wide net or to be able to do a deeper dive into a narrower niche where you feel like you have some expertise and some ability to separate the good from the great. Yeah, I think it's it's probably somewhere in between, which mm -hmm. is 
you got to have some number of deals just because you're building a portfolio. So unless you think you're, you know, going to bet bat bat a much higher batting average, you at least have need some diversification. But that diversification needs to be in domains that you understand. So the way we run our business is we've got vertical domains. So we've got kind of consumer, enterprise, financial services, mm -hmm. life sciences. We've got a bunch of domains, and we staff them with people who are super deep in those domains. And so within those areas, you know, they will go very deep. But then collectively, as part of a portfolio, you get the diversification associated with, uh, you know, the, the multi-dimensions. So here's a data point from the book that blew my mind. Quote, venture capital is not an especially good investment. As of 2017, 10-year returns for venture capital as a, in the aggregate, not specific funds, but in the aggregate, was 160 basis points below the NASDAQ. So for eight bucks, I could have gone out and bought the QQQs. Yep and outperformed the average of VCs, yeah. that's amazing. It is amazing, and it's it's a weird asset class in that regard, which is the variance between good performance and bad performance is really high, like sometimes as much as, you know, almost 3,500 or 4,000 basis points, right? So 35 to 40% amazing. return difference. And I think it's a function of the fact that most of this business is largely a zero-sum game in each round of financing. And what I mean by that is if we do the A round, which is kind of the first institutional uh -huh. round for a deal— Generally, that means, you know, we're the only ones who do that. There might be some other people, but usually one venture firm will be the major, major investor there. And once that opportunity is done, there will never be another A round in Facebook, for example, right? So, you know, Excel, who's a you know, very good firm, invests in the A round of Facebook. The next opportunity that somebody had to invest was at some multiple evaluation, sure. much higher than that. So those still turned out to be obviously very good investments. But there is this kind of nature that, you know, when a round happens it often accrues to one individual or one firm and then you know kind of things you know fundraise every 18 or 24 months and so the next investor obviously always comes in at a higher price so when i look at the world of stocks or mutual funds it's a sort of gaussian bell curve exactly, distribution right. yeah. where you know the extremes on either end get rid of them there's a big fat distribution in the middle what you're describing doesn't sound like that. That's exactly right. So, you know, the term that you may hear people use is kind of called a power law curve, right? And what a power law curve is, is you've got a very small number of Fat head, things. long tail. That's exactly right. you got a mm -hmm. few things that drive all the return. Then you got this long tail of a bunch of stuff that, quite frankly, doesn't amount to much from a returns perspective. And, and we see the same thing in private equity and, yeah. and hedge funds yeah. as well. It is funny, though, actually. You know, you mentioned kind of the public markets. It's actually interesting. There's been a bunch of studies, though, of late on the public markets, which is it turns out they actually are more power law that I think people understand. I think the number is 4% of stocks yeah, yeah. drive pretty much- I think that's exactly all right. All the 90% yeah. of the returns yeah. out there. It's So good luck picking those four. Exactly. If you have a time machine, it's really easy. Exactly right, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the changes that you've witnessed in the industry. In the book, you talk about why Combinator and why that was so influential and really changed the game for um, the VC world. Explain to the layperson what Y Combinator is sure. and why Why did it matter so much? Yeah, so Y Combinator is what we call an incubator, which means they basically kind of take usually a cohort of companies. It can be anywhere from 30, 50, sometimes as big as 100 companies. And they kind of, they basically start their business inside of Y Combinator. They go, that's where they go to work. They work on a project. They build a, they build a product. They get tutorials and kind of, you know, kind of tutelage from other people and then they kind of pop out the other end and hopefully they're ready to go raise, you know, money as a result of that. So it's kind of, you know, almost a finishing school to a certain extent to kind of get this startups ready 
to kind of be into the regular financing world. Now, now, Andreessen was an investor in Y Combinator or an investor in Y Combinator's funds? In, in Y Combinator's companies directly, actually. So a couple of years ago, when we first started, kind of I think from 2010 to 2012, when companies would go into Y Combinator, they would get some money. We were one of a few firms that used to give them some money. So we would invest small amounts, $25,000, $50,000. In, but in lots but, of different but, yeah, companies. Yeah, we just kind of, we didn't have discretion at that point in time. It's like, look, everybody who comes in, you're entitled to take this money if you want it. And then obviously, look, if we, you know, if we really were interested in the company, we could put more money in later in a normal mm-hmm. financing round. Hmm. So, so why did they change the entire, what did yeah, that yeah. set of, you mentioned earlier, there's an information asymmetry between yeah. the seasoned VCs and the young kids running these startups. Yeah. How did this level the playing field? Yeah. Did they just kind of learn the ropes? It's, through, re- through it's that? really interesting what happened. So I think the way to think about VC is- the first 35, 40 years of VC, call it kind of early 1970s to about 2005, which is when Y Combinator started, you know, you can think about it as capital was a scarce resource. Mm-hmm. The VCs had it. And therefore, if you looked at the power dynamic, kind of the VCs had the power and the entrepreneurs had less power. They were the gatekeeper if you wanted exactly right. to go. If you want the money, you had to go to Sand Hill Road and you had to go get the money, right? Right. And two big things happened. Uh, one is YC, which will come back. Sorry, that's short for Y Combinator. Yep. Uh, and then the second is the amount of money that it required to start a business continued to fall pretty precipitously starting in kind of late 90s and you know still continuing to today, right? So- you know, so fiber optics, cloud, exactly. all that stuff meant that- Bandwidth, it, storage, You didn't servers. need a whole team and a giant server farm. You needed two guys and a laptop, pretty much yeah, is and what you could it go to Am- like. Now you can go to Amazon Web Services, of course, and get stuff that used to cost you 5 or $10 million of capital expenditures years ago. I mean, when we were in LoudCloud, that's basically what we did. We raised money from the venture capitalists, and we basically then handed it over to companies that nobody remembers anymore, Sun Microsystems. We bought right. servers from you know Oracle databases. Uh, you know, all that stuff now you basically get in a box on demand from Amazon for, you know, $10 a gig or whatever the price it's is. It's amazing the changes um, that have taken so place. So what happened was, right, that started to happen, which meant you could now start companies for a lot less money. And therefore, a lot of these seed firms that we're now seeing kind of came into the mix. So we've seen a lot of new seeds. In fact, something like 500 new firms over the last 10 years have come into the seed market. As companies seeding startups. Exactly right. So kind of firms wow. like us, firms like Andreessen Horowitz, but just kind of smaller versions of it, right? So mm-hmm. $100 million funds instead of 700 or a billion dollar funds. Right. So you have kind of that phenomenon, right, which Amazing. is the amount of capital goes down. And then you have the second phenomenon, which is why Combinator comes along and says, hey, we're going to try to actually really, quite frankly, educate a lot of entrepreneurs about the whole startup process. And so take a little bit what was a very black box process and hopefully you know open the kimono a little bit. And, uh, and and that changed that information that changed, asymmetry. That started to change that information asymmetry. And so that really changed the competitive dynamics in this business because it used to be that if you were a traditional $250 million venture capital firm in this business, you were the first money in, right? So right. you kind of controlled access to that. Now you're living in an environment where capital is plentiful. You know, you're no longer the gatekeeper of capital. And oh, by the way, there's these 500 new firms that are being started that are kind of upstream of you, right? They're building a relationship with the entrepreneur before you. And then there's this kind of behemoth called Y Combinator that's also kind of effectively now becoming a gatekeeper, right? Because they are kind of a funnel through which a lot of these companies flow. And so the net of both of those is it really just started to dramatically change the environment for venture capital. And that was the opportunity that we saw when we started Andreessen Horowitz in 2009 was to take advantage of that kind of changing of the guard. So are are these seed funds and and, and YC, is this changing the quantity of new startups? Is it impacting the quality? Are we diluting the the talent? Or is it just, nope, it's a fire hose and the, the more the merrier? 
Yeah, it's so I think for right now, it's a fire hose and the more the merrier. So what it does mean is you can have a lot of experimentation happening for very little amounts of money. And look, I think that's a great thing. It's a great thing for entrepreneurship. It's a great thing for the industry. What's interesting, though, is the funnel does narrow, which is if you look at kind of seed deals, right, we're talking about there's been a, there's a lot of those. The money's, you know, there's a lot of money there. The number of deals has grown a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the exact numbers are. If something something like four or five times over the last, you know, 10 years in terms of kind of if you looked at it from point A to point B. So there's this vision of VCs as kind of a glamorous lifestyle. Uh, you know, when when we watch movies like The Social Network yeah. or my favorite show on HBO, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley yeah. which full disclosure, one of your partners was consulting with them early I'm, on. I'm aware of that. Um, uh, there, there's a certain degree of glamour, wealth, riches, and just cutting edge technology and making decisions that affect how technology develops. I get the sense from your book, it's a little grittier than that. It's a little <laughs> more hard work and long days and late nights and not all fun and games. Well, look, I think like any job, it's not all fun and games. And, and and let me make sure, let me be very clear, though, which is nobody should take out their little violins for the venture capitalists, okay, right? right? I mean, you know, all their kids, you know, have shoes. They all go to school. They all get fed, right? They and do so, have shoes. Okay, right. Uh, you know, know, it is, uh, I, I certainly, uh, <laughs> even if it's not as glamorous as depicted on TV, we should be very clear. It's still not bad. It's still, it's still a pretty good place to be. Right. I mean, look, the reality is the real heavy lifting gets done on the entrepreneur side, right? So mm-hmm. we shouldn't kid ourselves uh, in our business, and, and we certainly try not to, which is, as much as we want to be, you know, kind of finance partners and then hopefully add value in other ways to these companies, the heavy lifting is all being done by the entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. The, I think the part maybe that you're talking about that's, you know, the, the less glamour part is, look, like any other job, it's competitive, right? And you mm-hmm. got to go work hard. It's a question of, the, the real question at the end of the day is, why is an entrepreneur going to pick you versus any of the other firms that they can pick? And and that's a big sea change in the, in the business that just didn't exist in the same way in the first 30, 35 years. You know, when the VCs had all the capital, they had a lot more control and a lot more power. And, you know, now we're dealing with, you know, what I think is a very healthy kind of, you know, changing of the guard in some respects. But, you know, VCs don't control boards anymore like they used to, which, right. again, you know, I, we, we've- as You a still firm, get a okay seat on that. a board. If you're if you're going to do an A round and make a substantial That's right. investment- That's right. I would imagine you want some input into the management and some ability to watch how the money is being spent. That's exactly right. So, yeah, typically we will have a board seat. Um, and then typically we will have kind of a set of rights that go along with our stock that says, hey, if you're going to raise money, you have to let us vote to say yay or nay. Or if you're going to sell the company, we have some ability to kind of have a say. Uh, in the you know in the old days, and I, I was doing air quotes there, um, you know the venture capitalists, in addition to that, used to kind of control the board, meaning that there used to be more venture capital board seats on mm-hmm. the board than there were founder seats. And you know that's in some ways why I think you know uh, some of the reputation that the industry had was, hey. Some of these guys can get trigger happy sometimes on kicking CEOs out of the business and kicking founders out. That dynamic has really dramatically changed over the last 10 years. And we see more and more boards where the founders kind of control them in the sense that they have more board seats. And it does change the dynamic of the working relationship between them. So you mentioned that capital used to be scarce and now it seems pretty plentiful. So I want to explore that and try and figure out how that has impacted markets and and startups what are there now about 500 unicorns private companies that are a billion dollar valuation is that reflecting plentiful capital some people have called it a bubble yeah i'm not sure that's the right description yeah. we, we, but we have not by the way so and we've been 
we've been, you know, on record at this that I do think if you're talking about this compared to the 99-2000 bubble, it's right. very different. You know, you and I were talking about this before we started. So to give you a perspective, right? 99-2000, 700 plus IPOs in the tech industry in those two years. Right. The median revenue, uh, which I, I didn't realize until I looked this up to confirm it, $17 million, right? So you're talking about companies going public. With 17 yeah, million. Yeah, with $17 million right. of revenue right now. You know, we haven't we haven't done seven hundred. We haven't even done four hundred IPOs over the last ten years in the last right. decade, right? I mean, we've been doing about thirty, maybe fifty a year. So we got a long way to go. And we look look at the revenue at WeWorks or Uber yeah. or Airbnb. Yeah. It, it's pretty it's substantial. Huge. Yeah, the median number I think the last I looked for the last ten years is about one hundred and seventy million. But that ten x, really, yeah, it's ten x, right? But I think that even really understates it, right? I mean, you've got companies right like Lyft and Uber and others, right? That are you know they're going public with billions of dollars of revenue. So it's a very very different world. Um, but to your question, though, about kind of, you know, how much capital is out there, uh, it is true there's a lot of capital. Uh, and it's kind of a little bit of a, a tale of two cities, which is you have a lot of capital at the seed stage, mm -hmm. right? And we talked about that a little bit. Now, it's it's not a lot in the total scheme of things in the sense that it's about 6 5 6% of capital total in the venture capital world is seed. So it's grown a lot over the years, but it's not, you know, we're not talking 20 30% of the capital. Right. And then you have kind of the A and the B rounds have kind of, not moved that much. They've moved a little bit, but there's a little bit more capital. And then you have this big influx of capital in the kind of call it the C plus rounds, right? like the later late rounds. stage pre IPO rounds That's that exactly maybe right. 20 years ago would have been public instead of a private. That's round. exactly right. So yeah. the, the best way to see this is it used to be the case that from founding of a company to IPO, it was about six, six and a half years is typically what right. it used to be. Today, that's about 10 to 12 years. So you've pretty much basically doubled in the last decade Amazing. the time it's taking for companies to go public. And you're exactly right. So what's happening is you got all this capital that used to be in the public markets that's now saying, hey, we want some of that growth, right? We want these growth companies because we're not getting them in the public markets. And that capital now is coming into the private markets. And that's what's driving these very, very large rounds you see in the private markets. So here's another interesting stat from the book I, I thought was fascinating. 15 of the biggest 25 IPOs in 2018 were from companies that had no profits. So how should we be thinking about young companies that basically, you know, are, are losing a little money? The joke is Uber loses, loses a little money on each ride, but they make it up in volume. <laughs> right, exactly. so, so how do we think about these companies that are growing rapidly and have nice yeah. revenue, but are far away from profitability? So I think the way you have to think about it, and look, the way you have, if you're if you're getting comfortable investing in them, the way you have to think about it is you have to look at kind of what we call the unit economics, right? So in other words, show me kind of at a, at a unit level, so at a geographic market level or at kind of a per ride level, does the business work, and are we losing money in aggregate because we are now focused on growth in other markets, and when those markets are at a level of maturity, you know, you will see profitability. So. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a shareholder in Lyft, right? And so competitor for Uber. A competitor for Uber, right? So, and if you looked at Lyft, right, you know, my impression is when they went out on the road, what they probably did is they said, hey, look at our mature markets. Look at a San Francisco or look at, you know, Boston or whatever they might be. These are markets that are mature and we can demonstrably show you kind of the profits that we actually make in those mature markets. And oh, by the way, we've got a bunch of these immature markets. But if you believe the story, right, then those immature markets over time will get to the same levels of profitability. Right. And then therefore the companies themselves are profitable. I think that's the way to think about it, and that's what the investors are trying to do. You know, it'll be incumbent, obviously, upon these companies to actually prove that and demonstrate that, you know, kind of the story actually matches reality. Here's the question. So we have these big, fast-growing, well-funded companies yeah. Yeah. that aren't profitable. What what happens in the next down cycle? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think that's a real question, and I think this is why, actually, you see in the IPO market right now that 
the IPOs of companies are trading differently, I think, based upon kind of whether they are profitable and or how much cash ultimately they are consuming. So if you look at kind of the companies that have performed the best, they tend to be enterprise software companies like a Zoom, for example, right. or, you know, we saw lots of scale, lots of leverage. Right. So they've got, you know, they're growing fast. They're also profitable businesses. And so look, in a downturn, you could say, look, maybe they don't grow as fast, but they're not, there's not an existential threat to that business, right? So people right. are, if you're a CrowdStrike investor, look, people are going to buy security software at some point in time, even right. in a downturn. And so if it slows a little bit or if they lose a little bit of money, that's okay, not a big deal. And then, you know, you do see like the Ubers of the world where people say, hey, look, you know, you're telling us profitability in 2023, which means, you know, you may be reliant on the capital markets to raise more capital over that time period. And I think that's why you tend to see more volatility in those kinds of stocks that have this big cash consumption. So, so we keep, I keep coming back to the issue of how much capital is sloshing around. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the vision funds. Yep. What's the vision fund and how is this impacting the landscape out there? Yeah. So the vision fund is a fund that was raised by SoftBank, which is obviously a big Japanese conglomerate. And it's, it's a, huge. It's huge. It's a hundred billion dollars, right? And it's, it's, as far as I know, at least it's certainly the biggest fund that I've heard of that's you know, effectively a fund structure investing in, you know, private equity and, and venture back companies. Now, I know you probably don't want to bash a competitor in your space, but I imagine that much money in the hands of humans and they're just doling it out willy nilly and overpaying for stuff and saying, hey, I got a hundred billion dollars to deploy. Go out and find some more companies. It, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but is there any truth to that? Well, it's interesting. So a couple of years ago, SoftBank was kind of a class of one, right? They were they were the 800-pound gorilla, right? right? There was nobody else of that scale. And look, they had they had you know, look people people do what their incentives are, right? Which is so if you sure. worked at the SoftBank Vision Fund, clearly your your incentive was to go invest money. Now whether they were overpaying or doling it out, look, I mean, time will tell, obviously. And you know they did ha they do have a different kind of cost of capital, right? In other words. They're uh -huh. not trying to necessarily get a 3x or a 5x return on a company. Uh, they have a lower kind of return hurdle. So in theory, they could afford to pay more than maybe somebody like us could pay for the same business right. because we, we have to deliver a higher rate of return. The you have to be more efficient. They have the luxury of not not caring about that it's, sort yeah, of ROI. It's not, that we have to be, it's not that we have to be more efficient. It's that we are um, our investors say, look, for you to stay in business, we want to see three times our money being returned in every fund cycle, basically. Over seven years. Ten years, right, Ten is what years. they are. Yeah, okay. so give us three times your money, you know, which probably means somewhere between 25 and 30%, you know, kind of IRRs, right, annualized returns. Mm -hmm. uh, and Not if too you, shabby. Yeah, if you do that, look, we'll keep giving you the money. You get to play the look, game again. I mentioned earlier, you are my third victim from Andreessen Horowitz. <laughs> um, not only did I have a nice time talking to... Um, Benedict Evans, who has a wonderful newsletter that comes does, out of your shop, as well as, is it one or two podcasts? I think it's probably two at this point in time, yeah. <laughs> um, but I had a great time speaking with Mark yeah. uh, Andreessen in your in the pitch conference room. That's awesome. Which was fun. And if you listen to that interview, you could hear me bang the table. All right, I'm going to go back. And, and see it's if I can pretty hilarious because uh, it was just one of those like surreal locations to ha do a podcast and I had a number of people email me and say you know I normally listen at two times regular speed <laughs> but this guy talks so fast I couldn't keep up with it I'm like have you not heard Mark Andreessen speak before he just he he's like a New Yorker he's like he is, he is a fast speaker I agree. and yeah. and a lot of interesting dense stuff so I take that as a compliment when someone says 
had to listen at regular uh, <laughs> at regular speed. They didn't want to miss a word. That's good. We mentioned earlier you were employee number one. Yeah. Uh, after Andreessen and Horowitz, what is your role today? You were your managing yeah. partner. Yeah. What does that mean? What's your day job like? Uh, so it's a lot of things. Actually, my uh, my nickname inside the firm is actually called Slash, like kind of the the like the cut the cost, right? Well, no, actually, not Slash, like cut cost. Slash as in I have a lot of jobs, right? So, oh, I got you. So some days it's like you know, hyphen, Mister hyphen. hyphen, exactly, yeah. right? So some days it's go raise money. So we just you know finished a fundraise not too long ago. So how I much spent, did you guys raise? We just raised about three billion dollars, actually. Uh, so we so wait, I've been quoting funds. seven billion. I know seven actually, believe it or not, is even is out of date as of you know literally about thirty days ago. Wow. So I apologize for no, not, not at all. It's in the book and it's in. Your, I know, yeah, yeah. We, we go uh, fix Wikipedia. It's <laughs> exactly. wrong, right? Go You're, figure. Who who would have ever guessed something on Wikipedia was wrong? I know, I know. Um, so, so is yeah, it so closer to ten? Billion it's, yeah, now? we're over. We're just about over ten now. That's yeah, fantastic. So it's yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. So yeah, so what most of my job? But by, by the way, day, how how many people get to say, yeah, I raised three billion dollars? It's been a lot of fun. It's uh, you must really love your job. I do love my job. It's great. I mean, I love I, I love the capital raising part of it. We have a great limited partner base, and so it's a lot of fun to do that. And a lot of pensions and endowments. We do, and yeah, pensions, endowments, universities. Um, we do have some sovereign wealth funds too. So we talked about uh-huh. those kind of in one of our segments. Um, we you know some family offices, not that many. Um, and then we've got we're starting to build out more of an international base now. So kind of most of it was North America, really basically U.S. Right. And we're thinking now we've kind of expanded into Europe and then you know some parts of the Middle East and some parts of Asia. So it's been a fun opportunity just to kind of learn that side of the business. Can, can a, a VC scale significantly above where you are? I mean, if you were yeah. a software company, we didn't talk about how software I hear is eating the world. Yes, but Apparently but if you were so. you know if you're a software company, you could scale up infinitely. Yeah, you know Google Docs, nothing's going to prevent every person in the world from yeah. having a hundred sheets and docs on Google Docs. It, it just scales infinitely. You literally have. Partners who have to sign off on yep. stuff, associates who have to do some of the grunt work. There's a lot of decisions to be made. Yep. Where where do you top out? Yeah, this is this is the real conundrum with this business. Is so the the limiter in scale is basically the number of board seats that a general partner can sit on, right? And right. it varies. You know, some people top out at ten. We've got some of our folks who are doing like fifteen and sixteen who think they can go to twenty five. You know, really? we'll see we'll see if they get there. But uh, but you're right. So the kind of limiters are. At some point in time, you tap out your board seats, and then at some point in time, the room gets so big where you just have too many people, you know, trying to express an opinion. So right. the way we're trying to solve that is we do a little bit more kind of verticalization, basically. So I mentioned earlier that you we have creates different sleeves. And that's different right. Areas yeah. So of we've expertise. got a consumer team, right? And so we can grow that team more because you know right now there are probably what four people on our consumer team. And so you could probably continue to grow that as long as the deal opportunity set is there mm-hmm. and you don't have too many people in the room to make a decision, right? Our, our financial services team is too strong today. You could certainly grow that more. So we're trying to say, look, let's push the decision-making down at the vertical level to the teams that have the right domain expertise. And then above a certain dollar threshold, hey, if someone wants to write a $50 million or $100 million check, let's kind of get everybody in the room and make sure that nobody's going to blow a hole in the, you know, in the side of the ship. Right. Right. So 170 employees, how many partners out of that group? So we have 15 partners today. All right. Um, 90, 10 relationship, like a law firm or <laughs> yeah. similar, right? Yeah. Some of the big it, firms, it was seven to one sort yeah. of ratio. The other big difference though with our firm, right, is a hundred of those 170 people actually work with our companies post investment. So we're kind of an odd, odd beast in the venture capital Meaning world. that they're not going to your office each day. They're going to the entrepreneur's No, startup. no. So they actually, they're at our office. They work for us. 
but they do things like, hey, can we help you uh, get introduced to Bloomberg, to the CIO or the CTO? So, of so more of what we, I would traditionally imagine is a partner's job description. You're pushing that down to That's mid-level exactly staff. Right. That's exactly right. So the, the whole idea behind the firm was kind of this concept of, look, can we disaggregate the general partner job and say, what are the things that we really need the general partner to do? I right? love so these buzzwords. We, it's so good. <laughs> You're going to disaggregate the partners. Disaggregate, right. How about that? But, like but that? you know what? That's an accurate description. Yeah. So, you know, we want a general partner to look for great deals, build relationships, make investment decisions, and sit on boards and be valuable to those companies, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily need a general partner who's not an expert in recruiting CFOs to know how to do that. So instead, sure. we have a whole talent team. And that's their job is let's know all the top CFOs in the business. Let's build relationships with them. And then where appropriate, let's connect them into our portfolio companies, right? Mm-hmm. And so we do that on talent, on both executives as well as engineers. We do that on sales and business development prospects. So, you know, we cover companies like Bloomberg and others and say, who are the decision makers mm-hmm. that might buy software here or that might, you know, buy ad time for some of our ad-based companies? And we ought to know all those people and then figure out when can we connect them into our companies to help them accelerate their sales. Really, really intriguing. So what are your vertical um, specialties? What are the different groups? Yeah. So right now there's a a couple. So basically kind of consumer is one. And think of that as, you know, that's a Facebook and Instacart. Uh, Anything that, that that the end user essentially where the end user we used to is call that B to C back in the yes, day exactly right. I'm old so that's exactly right yeah that's a good way to think about it uh, financial services so fintech is one right. and that kind of has some B to C and some B to B elements of it right so it uh-huh. could be we have a company called a firm which basically is kind of point of sale lending I don't know if you know this but so if you sure. buy a Casper mattress. You know, and when you're they do the, the financing, site, right, right? They there. do the financing, right? So that's an interesting and they company. have the ability to make a fairly instantaneous. That's exactly right. Credit. That's exactly right. Above so and beyond credit. a credit card or somewhere between a credit card and a bank loan. Exactly is where they sit. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And then on you know completely other end of the spectrum, we've got a company called Branch, which basically does lending to sub-Saharan African com- uh, countries, basically and people in those countries. So literally, think of it as a taxi driver or a local store. Owner. Micro lending? Well, yeah, micro, micro lending, right? So who doesn't have credit, right? Basically, in a lot of these countries, you know, we have these credit bureaus, right? So you have kind of, you get your credit score and then you take that to the lender. In a lot right. of these other countries, there is no concept of a credit bureau. So a company like Branch literally is building people's individual credit files by giving them small micro loans. And then as they pay it back, obviously they start they to get kind of a build higher, a track record. Yeah. H- higher credit yeah. limit. So that's but- FinTech. Uh, enterprise. So enterprise could be anything from like an application company, like a Slack, for example, mm-hmm. would be in that to something more esoteric like a security company or a company that's doing, you know, a database or things of that sort. Um, We do crypto, which is an interesting area, which we can talk about. Sure. Let's Um, talk a little bit about crypto. Good. So uh, this crazy Facebook Libra thing. (laughs) So uh, I walked right into that one. Right. Let's just talk about this. So Facebook, who has helped um, undermine democracy as they (laughs) as they worked hand in hand with the Russians to spread fake news, decided that they want to replace money. So how could that ever go wrong? Yeah. So they're not, they don't want to replace money. They want to create internet money. Okay? Right. Right. So that's the way to think about it. That's at least how we think internet about Internet money. So yeah. not ACH, not credit, that's not right. Venmo. That's right. Which um, I use Venmo as a verb inappropriately, the young guys in my office tell me. Oh, really? So I, when I... When, uh, I, I owed someone money. They bought tickets for something. I said, just Venmo me. And he's like, dude, that's just... And I'm like, just Venmo. You're I think that's pretty forward So he said, you, no, actually. no, Venmo... He goes, I'm going to invoice you. You're going to Venmo me. Do I really... Uh, okay, I'll be I, more formal. 
So send me your request right, and I right, will right, pay right. you. Is that better? Yeah. But anyway, we, that, we that's digress. a really we digress. interesting yeah, technology. So the, the concept, right? So the concept is, again, we, we've been using this term internet money, right? So if you think about it, there are things like, of course, there are things like PayPal and stuff like that today, uh-huh. but they all depend on, you're right, they depend on ACH. Either banks or credit or banks cards or, or something. Stuff like that. Right. And it's expensive. Not everybody has access to that. And particularly in countries like, you know, a Venezuela, for example, right, where, you know, you've got these hyperinflation countries, mm-hmm. people want, you know, a stable currency that they actually don't have to worry about, right. you know, putting in wheelbarrows every day. And so what, what basically the Facebook consortium that they put together is, you know, intending to do is to say, look, could we create this concept of internet money so that you can procure things on the internet? You can even do like micropayments, which is very hard to do because of transaction costs. So, right. you know, if you wanted to charge people... 10 cents an episode to listen to your podcast, maybe that's a good way to monetize the podcast instead of advertising, for example. 10 cents. You know. I'm doing the math. I don't know, I don't know if that's the right math. I'm maybe in. Charge no, son, that, where right? do we yeah. sign up for yeah. this? All right. right. You've converted me to Libra. Right. But you couldn't, you couldn't do that today, right? Because, you know, by the time you took transaction fees and stuff, you would be losing, you'd be basically paying the credit card company to, to charge somebody 10 cents. So that's the, that's the kind of big idea of what they're trying to do. Now, look, it's, you know, uh, it's brand new. It's a consortium. It's going to be developed in a crypto framework, which means it will be decentralized and governed by all these different kind of groups that are being part of it. So it's not going to be Facebook actually central centralizing it and owning it. And right. uh, you know, it'll be an interesting experiment to see if they can make it work. So let me let me ask you a disclosure question. So you guys famously were an early early investor in Facebook. It worked out fabulously for for that investment. Are you still a Facebook holder? Or has that long since been worked out? So as a fund, we we don't hold Facebook shares anymore. A lot mm-hmm. of us individually do, and I will personally disclose I do have I do hold mm-hmm. Facebook shares, and I don't know if Mark or other people still do. I assume Mark does because he's on the board, so right. probably I imagine he gets you know some kind of grant of sure every every quarter or yeah. every year. Uh, but but in general, kind of the way our business works is you know RLPs pay us to manage private assets, right? right. And so once it's know, public, once it's public, look, they so have a you manager. Guys they sell- can go hire you if they want. So to buy Facebook here's a stock, question: Do you, you sell their Facebook shares, or do you dole that out to the LPs and let them sell it? Usually, what we do is we distribute the shares. That's to really the interesting. LPs, yeah, and huh. then you know, different LPs do different things. Some of them actually say, "Look, every time I get a distribution from a venture capitalist, I'm just going to automatically sell it. I'm not going to make an independent judgment." Right. Some of them are who, are, particularly the ones who are more sophisticated, say, "Wait a second, you know." I like Facebook stock, and oh, by the way, my man, one of my public managers has it, but I want an overweight position in Facebook stock, so you know what? I'm just going to hold on to this. And this has such a low cost basis, I That's can exactly hold on right. to yeah. it for this, although they're really, they're, they're, I'm going to say most, are, most of them are, are pretty, right? right. Yeah, so most taxes of them don't aren't care about an issue taxes, for right? them. They have the luxury of not having I to worry about I immediately that. think of cost basis Trust me, you and, I, you and I are thinking the same thing. It makes a big difference, yeah. you know? And then there's whole, there's lo- where you're going to locate the assets, you're going to put on these guys, exactly, they're right, all yeah. completely tax exempt. These guys are all so tax exempt, right? Yeah. It shouldn't, so, it shouldn't make any difference. But that's difference. basically how we think about the business. So, look, in general, yeah, like if they want to buy Facebook stock, they can buy Facebook stock. They don't need to pay us to do that. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, I didn't ask you during our broadcast portion the venture capital life cycle, yes. which you talk about in the book. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let's get a little wonky and talk about life cycles. And then I want to talk about persistency and oh, underfitting. Awesome. Yeah. So are, we're really going to walk out. Wow. So are, what's the VC topics. life cycle? Yeah. So basically, we raise funds, and those funds typically have a ten-year life. Now, if you talk to any LP, Te- but ten years, I'm going to interrupt you. Yes. Is ten years standard? I kind of remember it being a little shorter years ago, seven, eight years. I don't or know is if this that's changed. Ten to be years, pretty. Con- Since common. I've been in the business, it's been ten. Uh, I'll uh, defer to you. It's actually, and the opposite is actually true, which is, but any LP will tell you. There's no such thing as a 10-year fund. These funds go 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Because you're so. always left with stubs that haven't done anything. Yeah. And hopefully but the, they have the some value. But the bulk of it, the assumption is, 
hey, if it's not done by 10 years, just write it down to zero, and right. whatever comes out later that's is exactly a bonus. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly so, right. And I don't know if stub is the right technical term. I think it is a technical term, um, stub, yeah. But, but I'm under the impression that after a certain point, it either works or it doesn't, and yeah. it's not going to catch fire in the 11th year. So <laughs> right, we just needed Maybe. to go one more year. And but then... remember, right, it's taking 10, 11, 12 years for companies to go public now, so it's possible that it could catch fire. So it depends on whether <sighs> yeah, it's on that path or not. I guess, and at that point, it's certainly easy enough to find somebody who's going exactly to right. come yeah. in and, and take it off your hands. Yeah. So anyways, you got 10 years, basically. You do most of your investing typically in the first three or four years is what's mm -hmm. more typical. And then kind of in those later years, you're doing what's called follow-on investing, right? You're kind of maybe adding to positions that you've A had, second round. Doing or, second round or third round or stuff like that. How does the yeah. capital calls work? Is it like a hedge fund where all the money shows up? Or is it like private equity where you make a commitment, yep. give a small amount of money up front, and then they call it as needed? Yeah, it's the latter. So basically when an LP invests in our fund, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, like I'm committing to $10 million over the life of your fund. And, you know, we'll call it kind of, we typically call quarterly because, you know, we kind of generally know what the cadence is. Right. So, yeah, think about it as probably 70% of your money gets called in that first three or four years when mm -hmm. you're doing primary investing. And then the remainder gets called over years four through eight or nine or something, you know, for that follow-on investing. Hmm. That, that's, that's pretty interesting. And so that's the life cycle over... Of a typical fund. That's right. And then, you know, we'll go raise a new fund, hopefully. So hopefully after three or four years, if we've, you know, exhausted that fund, if we're doing well enough, then our LPs will say, great, like, we'll give you another shot at it and you go raise a new fund. And each new fund is a new legal entity. That's correct. With, with uh, I want to call it A16Z. You can but, call it A16Z. But I, people are not going to understand what that is. So <laughs> I have this great blue hat that sits in my car. Um, and it, it literally says a16z.com. Hey, I like and that. And there are 16 letters between the A in Andreessen and the Z Wow, in you got it. You got it. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, hey, I cracked that code. It wasn't too difficult. <laughs> um, but it's really a very interesting idea, and it allows you guys to come up with a almost random web url you Absolutely. go to get a website i know imagine. they're all taken yeah. it's it's kind of crazy and it so, allows people to actually find it because if you had to spell in recent horowitz right impossible we'd be out of business i always get that years. Uh, yeah exactly i always get that wrong so um persistence was what you mentioned we didn't talk about it. you want all right to talk so sure no? let's let's talk about um so each of these are separate yeah. fund you're the the firm is the gp and it may or may not be the same lps in yeah, it that's right and so you just did fund six that's right if you're just raising money for fund six and that was put to bed fund seven is a couple of years down that's the road. probably right yeah we tell our lps kind of think about it as two and a half three three and a half year cycles is probably the right way to think about it so let's let's talk about persistence which is kind right. of interesting and again i at risk of of i don't want to put words in your mouth and slag a competitor no but no, let no. me just talk about some of the talk of the town. So Kleiner Perkins, one of the most storied, John Doerr and that whole collection of, of folks, um, incredible Cisco yeah, and Apple right. and Microsoft. I mean, go down the list. It was insane. Yeah. Intel. Um, they did fabulously in the 80s and the 90s. The latter farm funds seem to have not had the same um, track record. So the question is, was it luck? Or did the environment change so much that they failed to adapt? Did that whole uh, sex discrimination case throw them off their game? These are my words, not yours. I don't want to put... Because right, yeah. you have to see these I'm people. Listen, I'm listening. To and I don't saying. want anybody <laughs> saying, hey, Scott, what the yeah. hell, man? Yeah. So this is... I apologize to John Doran, everybody. I'm repeating what I read. Yeah. 
I don't know this for a fact. I've never met these folks. You certainly have never sent any of this, so right. I'm giving okay, you good. I appreciate I'm that. giving I've you some plausible out, yeah. deniability. Yeah. Um, no, Kleiner, Kleiner, so look, first of all, you're upset. Kleiner is is you know an icon in the industry. There's and, no question, right? And their early track record was just. IPod, yeah, and then right? you know they also had a whole life sciences part of their business. Sure. You know, people like Rick Byers, right? One of the name partners there have done great things. Um, and and actually, right now they have a they have a whole new set of uh, a whole new team. So they've kind of brought on some some new people to kind of build out, re kind of build out their software business. And mm-hmm. and uh, look, they've successfully raised new funds and stuff. So you know, I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't count anybody out of this business. I mean, they're a, they're an iconic name with an iconic brand. And but that brings us deals. back to the issue of persistence. Yeah, the persistence issue. Yeah. So, so the whole concept of fathead long tail is there's a, a handful of winners. Yeah. It's a winner take all distribution, and those winners tend to stay winners. Yeah. So so explain. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So if you look at the if you look at all the academic literature around VC, basically, uh, you have a firm that is performs in the top quartile of returns in one cycle is is likely to then continue to be in the top quartile in the next cycle, right, mm-hmm. in their next fund. And I think the theory behind it, it goes back to a little bit of this kind of idea that we talked about earlier about kind of zero sum uh-huh. and signaling, which is, you know, if you're a firm like Kleiner Perkins, let's just use them as an example, you have a brand and you've, you know, you've invested in some of these fantastic companies like Cisco and Apple. And so, you know, I'm an entrepreneur who is, you know, looking to kind of get that brand affiliation to help me with my business, right? So I want your money because... You know, you've invested in smart people before, and therefore you must think I'm smart. Their money is more than just money. That's right, right. It goes with the brand and with the success they built over time, right? And so if I'm trying to recruit employees, you know, I say, hey, well, you know, I've got money from these Kleiner Perkins folks in this case. You know, they're smart. Therefore, you know, you should come work for me, right? Do something Mm -hmm. crazy like quit your job and tell your spouse that you're going to take a 50% cut in pay and come work for me. Or if you're a customer, you know, you have kind of the customer kind of gets the brand connotation of Kleiner Perkins. They may not owe you. But they've heard of John Doerr. They've heard of you know that, that organization. So mm-hmm. you get that kind of brand affiliation. So I think that's why there is this persistence. Mm-hmm. And then therefore, also as we talked about, because these deals are often zero sum, if you've got the brand, that gives you an unfair advantage in competing for the new deals. Uh, and when you win that A round of the deal, that means nobody else in the industry got to win that deal either, right? So you you kind of allow that persistence to kind of you know take effect and give you competitive advantage. Now this is the same thing we see in. Where do you want to go with this? Hedge funds, exactly right. Yeah. Ivy League schools. Yeah, is Harvard really Harvard, or Absolutely. are they just coasting on their reputation? Yeah, for no. Look, you're right. Four hundred years. Yeah, look, we we use signaling all the time, right? And it's you're, you're you're right. It's not it's not necessarily fair. Look, there's plenty of smart students at other places that don't go to Stanford or Harvard, but you know, an employer looks at that and they say, hey, like you know, it's probably the case that they've they've screened the student, they've done right. something, and so you know, I accept that as kind of you know brand affiliation for that student. But you're absolutely right. It's not fair. But it is unfortunately, you know, part of the way the world works. So we're not talking about fair. We're talking about if you're a pension fund or if you're an allocator and you have to decide, hey, I'm going to budget five percent of my my assets to venture capital. Yeah. Um, in the world of hedge funds, if you're not in the that top ten percent, you're paying a lot for not great performance. It sounds like the VC world is very very si- it is similar. If you're not in the top firms, well, then you really, as you pointed out, in on aggregate, going to yeah. underperform the public market. Yeah, this is where I think a lot of the LPs sometimes have kind of made mistakes in their venture portfolio. Is you know they you diversify. Know, yeah, they diversify. Right, diversification turns out to be a bad strategy in venture. Right, which right. is look if you've got you know you know if you are with a great firm who's in the top quartile, you know obviously things change, and of course maybe all the partners leave or you know something catastrophic happens. But in general. 
you want to probably double down your money on those folks as opposed to actually, you know, kind of diversifying. Other so places. the names I know, like Flatiron Ventures or Benchmark, sure. in addition to Kleiner Perkins injuries, and I, and I know there are dozens and dozens yeah. of others, the well-known top-tier firms really are well-known and top-tier for a reason. Uh, that's right, yeah. And they're, look, those are those are great firms. And so what happens, right, is the LPs want to allocate to those firms. And then what, what often happens, I think, where sometimes the LPs make mistakes is they say, look, I can't get access because, you know, I'll pick on funds, Benchmark. Right. Yeah, Benchmark, closed. right. Benchmark's, you know, you know, it's very hard to be a new LP and get access to a Benchmark fund. They're, they're so good that, right, they haven't really added to their LP base. And so then people sometimes say, okay, well, let me go down to the next tier or the next tier. And then unfortunately, in a lot of times in this business, you know, that means that you now start to get those returns we talked about, right. which converge to the median as opposed to the top returns. Mean reversion is a, exactly uh, right. Yes, is quite a mean. It's alive mistress, and well. A cruel, yes. a cruel mistress. So I, uh, I made a reference, but we really didn't get into um, Andreessen's piece. Software is eating the world. Yeah, that was 2011, and that turned out to be a fabulous call. Yeah. So really, the the question is. Um, is software still eating the world, and and when does this, you know, get replaced by whatever is going to replace software, <laughs> or does that just never end? It just keeps going. Yeah, uh, I think so. I think software is still eating the world, at least where we sit. We think it will continue to eat the world for, I don't know what the time period is, but I I don't I don't know. Until I don't fun forty seven exactly right. I don't see an end to it at this point mm -hmm. in time. And actually, what's interesting now is it's starting to touch a lot of industries that historically it never got to. So now we're starting to see software eating. A little bit of education, a little bit of healthcare, government services, um, you know, oil and gas markets, energy markets. So there's these, you know, very, very big markets that for a long time kind of were, you know, largely untouched. And I think we're still at the very, very beginning phases of it. So it's been our investment thesis for a long time. I think it's going to be our investment thesis for the foreseeable future. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you uh -oh. only because you brought it up. So healthcare, <laughs> healthcare is such a fascinating yeah. area. You guys have looked at biological sciences, yeah. not not really where you really focus. We we do actually have a bio fund, right? Uh, but yeah. but the whole there's a huge amount of um, genomics and yeah. go down the whole list of stuff. Yeah. You're really more hardcore tech, not not life sciences. But you yeah. do, as you said, you do have. But when you brought it up, I immediately thought of the. Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, J.P. Morgan right. Chase right, the concept right. of, yeah. hey, uh, healthcare in the United States is broken and we want to explore fixing it. When you see something like that, that do, does your VC um, Pavlovian response start to go <laughs> off and say, yes, it's broken and technology can fix it and here's a billion dollars? Like, how do you yeah. hear, like, when I heard that story, I'm like, damn, that's some serious firepower there. Yeah, yeah. How is this perceived at a shop where you're looking for the next great disruptive technology? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, we all take notice when things like that happen, obviously, particularly with those companies, because they're obviously all iconic companies and have tremendous resources. In general, though, funding something like that is not really, that's just not really our MO, right? So mm -hmm. our, our, you know, we, we may like that idea and we say, great, now is there a set of, you know, entrepreneurs who are starting from scratch with a completely blank slate and we can, you know, invest two, three, five million dollars in them right. to go try to build something that could be, you know, equivalent in terms of the results that those three companies might deliver, but can do it where it's a tech first company and uh, is really driven kind of bottoms up from the tech side. So it certainly kind of, you know, piques our interest, but it's not, it's just not in the scope of what we tend to do from a funding perspective. And really the last, I, I have a couple more questions, but sure. I don't want to, I don't want to. 
torture you with this. Um, <laughs> one is debt versus equity, and the other is valuations. You sure. write about uh, debt versus equity is a question that all entrepreneurs should think about. Yeah. What explain why that's significant yeah. and and how they should contextualize. Yeah. That. So I think there's a couple issues to think about on debt versus equity. So one is. And let's assume we're talking about real debt here, not convertible debt, right? So debt mm-hmm. that actually is going to stay there. The, the problem with debt is at some point you have to pay it back, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not that we want to be Wait, frivolous what? with equity. Yeah, you right? have to pay. <laughs> but, you know, so if you think about it from a startup perspective, right, for you to take debt and then say, okay, three years from now when hopefully my business is finally starting to hum, now I got to take money out of, you know, that I could be plowing into R&D or other stuff right. and I got to go pay it back. Like it's it's what we call, it's not permanent capital, right? So it, it can serve a purpose, but you know, I think for a startup business, it's a dangerous kind of you know path to get on because it, you want the permanency of capital that allows you to kind of make the investments into the company that you hopefully want to invest in. So, you know, a lot of our companies do what's called convertible debt sometimes, where you know, kind of that debt will start off as debt, but then it turns into equity at some point in time. Uh, and you know, people, what, why do that as opposed to straight equity? Look. Uh, personally, you know, from our perspective, and we've been public on this, we would rather people do straight equity. Convertible debt started uh, largely, I think, because people said it's cheaper, it's just faster. You don't have to have you know hours and hours of lawyers doing this stuff, uh, and it kind of punts the valuation question, right? We don't have to decide on the valuation today. We say, hey, look, in the future, when there's equity rounds, we'll just convert it at that price or some discount, but we don't need to go fight about valuation. Huh. Um, it's it's That's grown a lot. Um, it's problematic for a lot of reasons. I think the most the most place we see problems is founders will kind of do many debt rounds, and right. then the, they don't really realize until they finally go to raise an equity round. When all that debt converts into equity, they realize, oh my gosh, I've sold a lot more of the company than right. I realized, right? Because you don't have that tangible, hey, you know, I got five million dollars and I gave up twenty five percent of my company or something like that. The the, the so math is easy to track. It's when it's, it's pure a, it's equity. Harder. Yeah. And then the last question I have to ask you about is valuation. Yes. And I still have in my head Mark's comment that, hey, look at all the companies that blew up in 2000, 2001, 2002. They've all since, the ideas were fine. They were just a little ahead of themselves. The perfect example, back then it was Pets.com. Chewy.com. And now Chewy is just- Webvan Webvan and Instacart. Yeah. Right? Mirror images of one another, basically. So- so and his take was, for when we're looking for fifty or hundred baggers, stop and think about it. If he over, he's the f- example he used is, I think he was in Facebook at like a twenty million dollar valuation. He I goes, what would, what happens if I paid a hundred right, million? Right, 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 Does right. it make any difference when it's fifty billion or a hundred billion? All right, so this like is, it's almost yeah. irrelevant at that point. And for yeah. an equity, for a public equity guy, <laughs> I'm aghast at that. But intellectually. His yeah. math makes sense. Yeah. So it's funny. I'll give you a little bit inside baseball. So this is the number one thing that Mark and I fight about all the time inside the firm. Really? Uh, yeah. So I, I think he, I think his principle is right. And I've told him this before, so hopefully he won't fire me when he hears this. But, um, <laughs> yeah. His principle is Bad right. Bad news, Scott. His principle is absolutely right, which is, look, you're right. If you're going to invest in Facebook, look, the difference between a $30 million or a $40 million or $50 million valuation, <laughs> who cares, right? It's $100 billion, You know, It went to $500 billion. We can all but look, that's we can a all one that. winner. Look at it in an aggregate against maybe the companies that weren't. I think that's dollars. right. I think I think the problem is um, it's well, very it's 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 very hard then to know what is the price at which you wouldn't actually make that investment. In other words, so if I would make it at fifty or hundred, would you pay five hundred for Facebook at that right. point in time? And look, in retrospect, it was Facebook. So again, you sure. wouldn't pay anything. But but back at the hindsight bias, a company yeah. that we don't know X Y Z, we don't know what it's going to be. Right. Where do you draw a line? Yeah, so what we try to do, right, is we try to say, okay, let's assume everything works out, okay? So what could this company be at scale, right? So 
how big can it get? What's the market size? Right, all those things. Mm -hmm. And then we say, okay, look, if you you know believe that it can actually get to a ten twenty billion dollar company, and you're right, you're trying to optimize for ten twenty five fifty times your money. There's at least a range of prices, and it's it's you're right. If you loved it at thirty million, you probably are still loving it at forty million. But maybe the answer is, look, you don't love it at $100 million. Right. The other piece to think about is it's not just the entry valuation that matters for that purpose. It's the next round. It's the next also. round. That's exactly yeah. right. That's what I'd say, which is you know, at some point in time- Got to leave yourself a little upside. That's exactly right. And so that's the other risk, I think, that you can get into if you don't at least think critically about valuation is you may be happy, but then look, these guys are going to go raise you know, another two, three, four rounds. And if every round, every investor feels like they're getting pushed, it doesn't work. Now, there are much. examples where that works, you know- uh, we famously, you know, didn't invest in Square, which um, worked out. You know, okay. Turned out to be great, right. and you know, at every round, you know, it always felt like you were paying ahead of what the what the actual intrinsic value of the business was. But you know, the reality is that's the way a lot of these things look. So I think his principle is right, and but I, I think you just have to say, okay, look, there is some limit at which we say, okay, the risk of next round financing, and you know, kind of the the real upside opportunity is somewhat constrained by valuation. So let's take an example: Uber, a yeah. giant by any measure successful startup company yeah. i think if you were uh, if you were a private investor 80% of the private investors are underwater based on where the based most on where recent it's price is today right yeah. yeah that may be right but you know most of the look there are also people like benchmark and lots of other firms who are certainly not underwater right sure. yeah exactly yeah look i mean i would say i guess a couple things about uber we're left investors so you know you can take this with a big grain of salt um, you need you. You always. I disagree with uh, my friend Scott Galloway and then Wendy okay, Stern, right, yeah. who thinks Lyft is toast. There's only going to be one winner here. <laughs> hey, what name a field where there isn't a Pepsi to the Coke? Yeah, I think and, that's, and that's right. What I, this I, is. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's the case. I mean, obviously, look, we we bet that way and we believe that. Um, you know, the other, the only other thing I'd say about Uber and I'd say it's about Lyft too, which is look, yes, they're underwater today. Look, judging these companies, though, I think based on three, four, five weeks of, of stock price trading, right. is a little bit unfair. That's I mean, totally unfair. Yeah, you know, look, Facebook, right? Facebook, you know, went to fourteen dollars. Right, share, they right? had a crappy and, IPO before and, uh, it all turns around. And so, look, at some point in time, yes, these companies will all trade on some like multiple of cash flow at some point mm -hmm. in time. And then we'll really be able to judge, quite frankly, you know, whether they're overvalued or not. And my last question before I get to my favorite uh, speed round questions, WeWorks seems to be just <laughs> off the charts where a floor in a WeWorks building is worth more than the building itself. Yeah. Does any of this make any sense? Yeah, so we're not investors in WeWork. Um, right. So you can tell us the straight down. Well, look, though. and I, so I don't know the numbers, but I do think there is this big question, which is, fundamentally, is it a technology company or is it a, you know, a very real successful estate real estate yeah. business, right? And Look, if it's the latter, we know that those things will trade on some cap rate at some point in time. Right. Uh, and it's so, all about IRR yeah. relative to the cost of real estate. I think that's the question. Look, and I don't know, since I'm not an investor, look, maybe they have some story, which is, look, maybe there's technology or something else, which means they should trade at a premium to a, re to a REIT, basically, because mm -hmm. of, you know, better margins or something like that. I don't know. But I think, look, that is the fundamental question for them. And and I think that's what, you know, if, if they go public, as at least it's rumored that they might go uh, uh -huh. soon, I think, you know, we'll have the public markets ability to weigh in on that pretty soon. So I only have you here for a finite time, they're telling me. So let's jump to our favorite questions that I ask all my guests. Feel free to go as long or short with these as okay, you like. Yeah. Um, your first car, make, year, and model. Uh, my first car was actually a Peugeot 505 STI. Wow. It was, an, it was an old one. And actually, I'll tell you, though, I loved it. Uh, for the time it wasn't in the shop, basically. Right. It was literally you know, in the shop every other day, but boy, when it wasn't, it was a fun car to drive. Uh, uh, to say the least, that is a fun <laughs> car. What's the most important thing that people don't know about Scott Cooper? Uh, well, I tell a little bit about the book, but um, uh, I am, well, maybe the most important thing is, look, I'm a 
I'm an, the most introverted person probably you will ever meet, which I know sounds funny. Uh, no, uh, I can relate to I that. Can, I can. I, I. You're vastly I play, overcompensating. Right. I play. I play an extrovert on TV. But no, uh, I. Yeah. You are not the only when person. I, who... What I like to do is I like to go home and read a book and sit on my couch and watch Netflix. And what could be better? Than I agree. That, right. <laughs> I, I. I am right there with you. Who were some of your early mentors? Uh, I was actually mentored uh, by a family friend, a guy named Armin Weinberg is his name. I grew mm-hmm. up in Houston. Uh, and he ran um, at uh, the MD Anderson Hospital, which is a very famous kind of you know cancer hospital. He ran a bunch of studies around you know kind of early cancer prevention, and so we did some research on you know how do you detect and prevent breast cancer, prostate cancer, things of that sort. And it kind of got me into my initial love was kind of health policy and things of that sort. And uh, you know he gave me jobs over the summer and did all kinds of stuff that helped me kind of get into that field. It was a lot of fun. Uh- Let's talk about your favorite books. What are some of your favorite books? Be they fiction, nonfiction, um, investing related, yeah. what, whatever you enjoy reading. You mentioned books. I, yeah, I love, uh, I only read nonfiction now. Uh, Isn't and, that terrible? I'm the same way, yeah. and I miss fiction from my childhood. You know, it's funny. I never was a big fiction reader growing really? up. Uh, I never oh, liked, science fiction? And yeah. Never you know, got into that. Not really. I mean, I you know I read a few of them here and there, Tolkien, but I was never into it. Yeah. Nothing. Uh, no, I I yeah I you know look, truth be told, this is terrible to say uh, publicly, but I was I was not a reader growing up at all. I hated mm-hmm. reading, and in fact, I'll never forget this. Um, hopefully, uh, my college uh, teachers aren't listening. But when I was applying to college, you know, after my junior year of high school, uh, I got the applications, and I was applying. Actually, Harvard was one of the schools I applied to. I did not get in, by the way. Um, and, you know, it said, tell us about the last three books you've read. And, you know, I'm that out. was one of the essay questions. Well, no, it wasn't. I said, oh, my God, I've got to go read three books. So I read three books that summer. Those are the only three books I right. read. And really? I wrote about them. Yeah. Oh, um, God. Between Vonnegut and books were great in high school. Yeah. And then college. The problem with college is they want you to read books that for a purpose as right, opposed right, for right. pleasure. So, yeah. so, so, yeah, so I love I love nonfiction stuff. So, like, one of my favorite books is Master of the Senate, which is, you know, the book about Lyndon Johnson. Huh. I think that's really cool. Uh, is I'm that reading, Robert Cara? Yes, it is Robert okay. Cara. He's got that whole series. I think I've I've read immense. all of them. Apparently, they are immense. Apparently, he's got one more coming out about uh, how he does his work right, process. It's, right, it's supposed to be fabulous, but like nine hundred pages. I was going to say right, it's going to be nine hundred pages, and you know, and uh, you know, obviously he's you know he's not a young chicken anymore, and so right. he's got to get it done before right. And he's uh, but his happens, work but is quite brilliant. He's great. Yeah, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, I'm going to blank on the title about uh, financial bubbles and speculation, which is really interesting. It's called, oh, it's called Devil Take the Hindmost. Is a oh, sure. Book. Yeah. Uh, it's an older book. It's actually, uh, I hadn't, I, I couldn't believe I hadn't read it and I ran across it somewhere. Um, and that's interesting. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll pick up some, you know, lighter stuff every now and then, but I generally tend to try and Edward Chancellor. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes, this yes, is yes. a pretty, uh, pretty famous book. Yeah. It's a good book. It's a very good book. Give so, us one more. One more that is exciting right now. Uh, what am I reading? Um, the guy who runs the AEI Institute, I'm forgetting his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a book out. It's actually called Love or Love Yourself or something like that. It's a very interesting book about kind of, you know, it's a, it's a book about modern politics and about how, uh, you know, kind of bifurcated, obviously, we've all become. And this concept of, you know, his general view is, look, you know, it's a lot of this is breakdown of human relationships. So I got a copy of it. Have you read it yet? Or is I'm, it, I'm, it's kind of, I'm kind of like 25 pages in. All so. right. So I got a review copy of oh, it okay. and I recognize his name. And the pitch is we need to love each other more and we right. need to be more yep. involved. And I'm thinking, wait a second, AEI, you're the guys <laughs> who said the poor's caused the crisis. This was right. all the fault of, you know, first we did anti-redlining and that. Right. And this whole thing about 
it was the black and brown people's fault. Right. Wait, now you're pivoting to maybe well, we this is his reduce... this is his swan song. So the story, yeah. as you may know, right, is he he's quitting AI after that. I didn't know. So yeah, he's he's been there ten years. It's terrible. I can't remember his name. I apologize. You, I'll you, find. You probably it. find it. So he is leaving AI after ten years. In fact, he had a really interesting Arthur um, Brooks. Arthur Brooks, exactly. Right. That's so, his name. Yeah. so when I got this from my editor here, okay. yeah. I said, "You don't mind if I, you know, remove these guy, this guy's intestines, and jump rope with it?" Because <laughs> that's after after how divisive. Yeah. So there's a whole other thing that yeah. in the old days think tanks used to be think tanks, right? Right. And right. now they've become these partisan idea shops and right. policy shops. So, like, wait after a two decades of sheer partisan rancor, you're going to tell me you now want everybody to hold hands and right, sing Kumbaya, exactly. <laughs> right? And I can't say what I want to say all on right, the radio, right. but I so think, I, I think have not read it. So anyways. But if you read it I want, and you like it, I, I want I, you to I, get I, back yeah, to so me I'm, and say- I'm early on. So, so yes, I'm will, glad I'll, somebody I'll I know is reading I'll, it. I'll give you the review. Truth, um, truth be told, the reason I have it is because it was a it was a freebie at a conference I was at. So oh. I might not have seen it otherwise, but uh, oh, that's kind of. But I actually saw him speak. See, I'm it. more concerned about the co- than the cost of the book than my time commitment to read it, because <laughs> it's ten or twelve hours that you'll n- yeah like. And I've learned my my. I'm going to share one thing with you. Yeah, I've learned that when you start a book and you don't like it, just put it away. And oh, you know, I was it. just going to say that. That is. Somebody uh, actually took Chris, a long time to Chris get Dixon, to that. Chris Dixon, one of my partners, told me that, and boy, that's the most liberating thing I've ever heard. I agree. Oh, I never wow. would do that. I would, I would do the force march through the oh, books. The, right, the baton death yeah. march through the last hundred. And it is pages. so liberating to say, okay, look, like I think I got it, and I think I understand the point, and you know, or you know, I'll, let me skip a couple oh, pages here and there. Right now, yeah, nobody, no. sh- nobody should skip my book. Of course, I got to go read every word. Right, soup, soup from start to finish. You got to plow your yeah. way right through it. <laughs> Um, so, uh, what VC influenced your approach to venture investing? Yeah, so we've had um, probably one of the most interesting ones was a guy named Andy Ratcliffe, who was actually one of the founders of Benchmark. Name. You know Andy? Okay, so, sure. I, I don't know him. Yeah, so Andy is a long time venture familiar. guy. Uh-huh. He was at a firm called Merrill Pickard, actually, which is where a bunch of the Benchmark team spun out. And mm-hmm. Andy was a little bit more on the enterprise side, so he did a bunch of their enterprise investing. But uh, he was actually. Um, he was the original investor in LoudCloud and Opsware, and so ah. I just got to know him through that process. And uh, and I have a few references to him in the book uh, in the book there. But uh, uh, you know, he's he's his his famous thing that he talked about at Benchmark was this concept of markets versus teams. And uh, you know, basically, he's got you know his view is look, uh, which I think is true is you know good markets always beat good teams, or I, well, I should say around, around. bad markets. Sorry, bad markets always beat good teams. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously, you know, good teams can, you know, they can survive in a bad market, but will never likely, you know, never likely kind of get there. All right. Now we're going to do the speed round because they, they need to take you to wherever you're going next. Okay. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah. Probably my most high profile failure was, uh, actually when I was applying to schools, I desperately wanted to go to Stanford, uh, coming out of school and, was flatly rejected as I was at Harvard, as I mentioned. Oh, really? And, but you uh, ended up going to Stanford. I did end up going. So I went to Penn actually for one year out here on the East Coast, and then, and you then transferred. I transferred. Yeah, but ah. uh, it was a you know there's a little persistency. Then, exactly, there's some well. persistence, right? Um, what do you do for fun when you're not in the office or home reading books? Yeah, I uh, I like to run. I've always liked to run. I used to be a marathoner, but kind of had to hang up hang mm-hmm. up that those shoes before. But knees, I still like hips, to get out. ankles, what is it? You name it, all those things. <laughs> okay. You know. Uh, and then I uh, I I I like guitar playing guitar i'm not very good at it but mm-hmm. i'm always i've been a country music fan for a long time so interesting um our final two questions a young millennial comes to you and says they're interested yeah. in a career in either venture capital or technology 
what sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, my best advice is go into a startup company. You don't have to start your own company, but learn the company building process. Don't don't go to venture. You know, you, you will be a much better, better venture capitalist having understood the company building process. And, and my final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 20 plus years ago? Yeah, the biggest thing for me is I always I would have thought that most of the failure cases would be product or market failures. Uh-huh. Uh, it, and, and look, that happens sometimes. Look, sometimes the product just doesn't take or the market changes. The biggest thing that I found over the years we've been doing this is it's all about the team. And, and I know that sounds almost, you know, kind of, you know, comical to say, but- I thought you were going to say execution. You're well, saying well, I mean, the- I, well, so embedded in that is execution, right? Mm-hmm. You know, do, are you hiring people at the right time? Are you thinking about your go-to-market in the right way? Do you have the right cultural dynamic in the company? Those are the things, you know, when we look at the companies that go awry in a good market, it's almost always something like that. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Scott Cooper. He is the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, now running $10 billion. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back and check out all our previous such conversations. You can look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or wherever your finer podcasts are sold and see any of our previous 250 uh, such conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Leave a review for us on Apple iTunes. You can check out my daily column on bloomberg.com slash opinion or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.